Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape in this country. On today's outstanding panel, joining us is the former chair of the New Hampshire Republican Party, Jennifer Horn. Welcome back, Jennifer, and happy Mother's Day. Oh, thank you so much for that. It's great to be here. I I hope my children remember. (laughs) (laughs) Also returning is crisis communications consultant and MSNBC political analyst, our good friend and Roundup favorite, Susan Del Percio. Thanks for being on, Susan. Wonderful to be with you. On this week's Roundup, the mini revolution, as President Biden put it, inside the Republican Party and what the push to drive Liz Cheney from party leadership tells us about the anti-truth GOP. Bill Barr misleading Congress on the findings of the Mueller investigation and whether President Trump could or should have been charged with obstruction of justice. The politics of reopening and anti-scientific positions on the right and left. Also, in our segment exclusively available to Politicology Plus subscribers, we'll dive into ranked choice voting and the impact it's going to have on upcoming elections in New York and Virginia. So let's get started. Last week, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy was speaking to reporters at the House Republicans' annual policy retreat, and he was asked whether Liz Cheney, the GOP conference chairwoman and the number three House Republican, was still a good fit for the leadership team. McCarthy replied, that's a question for the conference. When pressed further for his position, McCarthy said, I think from a perspective, if you're sitting here at a retreat that's focused on policy, focused on the future of making America in the next century, and you're talking about something else, you're not being productive. Back in February, House Republicans voted 145 to 61 on a secret ballot to keep Cheney in her leadership position. And Cheney has continued to speak out about the need for Republicans to be truthful about the election and stands by her vote to impeach the former president for inciting the insurrection on January 6th. Earlier this week, McCarthy was caught on a hot mic speaking to Steve Ducey about Liz Cheney ahead of a live Fox and Friends interview. Let's listen to what he said in his own words. I think she's got real problems. I, 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 I've had it with, I've had it with her. It's, you know, I, I've lost confidence. Well, someone just has to bring a motion, but I assume that will probably take place. Now, it's likely that the House Republicans will move again to oust her, possibly next week. The number two Republican, uh, House Minority Whip Steve Scalise, said in a statement that he is supporting the ouster of Cheney from her leadership position and called for Representative Elise Stefanik to replace her as House Republican conference chair. So, Susan, I loved your NBC Think column about this whole situation where you said, Cheney has maintained the importance of a bipartisan commission to investigate the Capitol violence. She believes President Joe Biden was lawfully elected president of the United States. These two facts should be obvious to any member of Congress who supports and believes in the U.S. Constitution. And yet here we are. So (laughs) this is so well said. This is about a fundamental difference between how Liz Cheney views her job, her, her duty as a public servant, to uphold core principles and values of democracy and truth and House Republicans breaking away from all of those things. So where is this headed? To a very, very bad place. And, it, and you know, short term, we're going to see the Republican conference go on with their loyalty to Trump. 
they're going to. And that's what this vote is on next week. This is about do you support Donald Trump or do you support Liz Cheney, which really breaks down to do you support the big lie or do you support democracy? And what's unique is that Liz Cheney last time was out there for on her leadership vote because of her vote on impeachment. Today, or not today, but next week, she'll be out there for her commitment to democracy and really showing up all those other members of Congress. That's what they're ticked off about. When McCarthy says, I've had enough of her, they've had enough of her because they're, she's making them look bad. For what reason? To have the commission on, on January 6th, which McCarthy is petrified of because he'll probably have to testify under oath. And even if he's subpoenaed, it's still going to be a huge problem for him. And that's what they're all angry about. This is disrupting. It's not about Liz Cheney talking about President Trump. Trump is the one who keeps calling her out. She just responds and says it's a big lie. And Joe Biden was dutifully elected. What's wrong with that? Yeah. Jennifer, what does it show about House Republicans that they aren't demanding, for example, Matt Gates be stripped of committee assignments? They aren't they, they aren't worried about Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren Boebert. They're worried about Liz Cheney telling the truth. Right. Let's let's listen. You know, people should go back and re-listen to that um, clip you had of Kevin McCarthy kind of talking off the record yeah. to Fox News as he was waiting to go on the air. Um, I just find that so incredibly arrogant where he sits there and says, I've had it with her. I've had it with Liz Cheney because it goes to Susan's point. What has he had it with? He's had it with members of the Republican party, having the gall to stand up and try to defend democracy. He's had it with all these voices who keep saying we should put the constitution before fealty to Donald Trump. Like it's such an extreme, but he doesn't have the courage to say that on the air. If you go through and watch the, he didn't say that on the record. He didn't say that when the cameras are on, he doesn't say that to reporters, but that's what this is. You know, what I find really interesting with Liz Cheney is, um, she, you know, there, there's so there's so much of this that, that is, that, it, that kind of overlaps and that I find fascinating. Liz Cheney didn't spend the last four years speaking up to Donald Trump. She, she, you know, went along in a lot of ways, a lot of times, but it seems like we all have most decent human beings have some line that they will not cross. And that, and we have found Liz Cheney's line and, and I have tremendous admiration for her standing up and, and being as, as immovable on this as she's been. Her line is she will not embrace the big lie. She will not put Donald Trump over the Constitution, over democracy. She's had enough. This is her line. She will not cross it. Steve Scalise, he doesn't seem to have a line. Kevin McCarthy, he doesn't have a line. Matt Gates clearly doesn't have a line. These And, and what, what I find so interesting from a strategic standpoint on all of this is they have clearly sat down and had an in-depth conversation about how do we think we can win back the majority in the House. And they've decided that the best way to do it is by trying to keep Donald Trump's most rabid voters in the Republican fold. That's who they're speaking to. And they're assuming that rational Republicans will come along for the ride just to win back the House. 
Susan? Yeah, I think, though, they're actually thinking they can't win 2022 without those Trumpists. And they know because they look at Georgia, they will stay home. So right. it's uh, it's they they're more afraid of them staying home than than actually putting up a good candidate who could win a, a moderate district, for example. But and and look at the choice that they've made in taking that a next step further. They have decided that rather than try to make an argument for conservative principles, or rather than try to put forth, um, you know, strong productive legislation that they can fight for and tell the American people, here's what we're going to fight for for you as Republicans. Here's who we what we. They've decided their message is. All hail Donald Trump. All hail Donald Trump. That's it. That's remember last summer at the convention when they chose not to put forth a platform and instead released a statement saying the Republican Party supports Donald Trump. He lost the presidency. He lost the Senate. They couldn't get the House. And there's a Republican all because I think you can say quite in a data driven manner because of Donald Trump, they lost everything. And they're still standing here saying um, our message is we support Donald Trump. And so, I'll just give you just yeah. one more thing to yeah, make please. it even worse. That column that you mentioned that I wrote, yeah. it ends with the worst is yet to come. Yeah, yeah. Now, here's one thing. Here's one thing to think about is that when they take that vote next week on Liz Cheney, they could potentially be talking about reinstating Marjorie Taylor Greene to a committee. Oh, my God. If they, oh I, I believe it's the same as the vote on, on um, Liz Cheney, that if someone just makes a motion. Isn't that how it works? If someone just makes a motion, that brings it yeah. forward. And, then, and, and here's what's significant about that, not just because she's crazy and doesn't belong in government, but she raised $3 million. Oh, yeah. In the right. first quarter. For the first right. quarter. Yeah. She is the re- natural replacement in their warped minds for Liz Cheney because that money that Liz Cheney brings in, that institutional Republican yep. money, yep. they're very they, – they know it may go away, at least temporarily. They know with Marjorie Taylor Greene, they have a fundraising machine. And I know that's like inside baseball, but I think some of your listeners kind of oh, like- they get probably, it. Yeah, yeah I they, mean- they get it by now. It's totally. just it's just crazy to think that those These are the These are the incentives that are driving the decisions. Correct. Yeah. Especially after listening to Kevin McCarthy's tone of voice as he derided you know, uh, Liz Cheney to Steve Ducey. How- what what would what situation would be would we be in today if Steve Scalise was number three, or if Steve Scalise was the one saying, "Hey, we need to investigate the insurrection. Uh, you know, we need to, to stand by the truth." If it was a man, a Republican mm. man in leadership, having the gall to stand as strong as Liz Cheney is, because Marjorie Taylor Greene, they didn't want to, you know, go after her too hard because she represents this crazy base of of Trumpists, but they took her off her committees. Where's Matt Gates? Yeah. How bad does Matt Gates have to get before the men in leadership decide they want to do something about him? And I really, I have to question if part of this isn't some kind of instinctive, how this girl, how dare this girl cause us these problems? So back in February, the first time this happened, uh, which was actually a regularly scheduled conference vote, uh, and this one is not, it was, uh, I think, Pennsylvania Representative Mike Kelly who made a comment 
Um, uh, you, yes, you look up yeah. into the stands yes. and you see your girlfriend on the opposition side. Right. That's one hell of a tough thing to swallow. It was so just misogynistic. And uh, so uh, one, one more question though, is this vote is going to be private, just like it's going to be, it's going to be in, in closed behind closed doors. It will not be public just like the last one was. Um, and this is not a regularly scheduled conference meeting. This is, they're do they're, they're holding this meeting specifically for this purpose. So Susan, do you expect any of these, um, any of these conference members to announce publicly how they voted about Liz Cheney? The ones who vote to boot her will publicly say so. Um, very loudly, and, I, and not all of them. I, th- what's very interesting right now is Liz Cheney, unlike February, she is not whipping votes. She's not out there trying to gauge what the vote is going to be. Last time she knew within one or two votes what, what the turnout was. This time she's, some people say, and this just irks me, is that she's not defending herself. Mm. She has nothing to defend. She, <laughs> right. Everyone's clear. <laughs> she, she's not yeah. defending herself for being for the Constitution. <laughs> right. I think Liz Cheney, you know, has, has pretty much decided, go ahead and vote. Vote me in. Vote me out. Yeah. I don't care. Yeah. This is what's right, and this is what I'm sticking with. I'm like, that's my story. I'm sticking to it. This is the the, the Constitution, democracy, honesty, um, transparency. You know, I really think she's looking at this, saying, "Are you kidding me? We just went through this in February. You want to vote me out again? Do it. See see if that makes me go away." Yeah. And Mike Madrid had an excellent tweet yesterday where he talked about Liz Cheney. And he's and he essentially said, "Don't believe that this is the end for Liz Cheney. This is what a good beginning looks like." Oh yeah. And um and and he's absolutely right. He's absolutely correct. Liz Cheney, if they vote her out, she becomes more powerful, more influential. Her voice is going to be more interesting um, and more listened to by others. By by making her a martyr for democracy. There's a Star Wars reference here to be had. Um, (laughs) Strike her down and she will become more powerful. So uh, speaking of, I saw some takes from people who are supporting Cheney uh, or are at least taking her side that she is the future of the Republican Party. Um, That's not at all how I see this. Um, you know, Liz Cheney and the Cheney, Romney, Kinzinger type Republicans are losing power and their grip over the party not gaining it. Um, so what's the future uh, for the party that is pushing out anyone who speaks basic fundamental truths about democracy? And what do you think the Liz Cheney's and the Mitt Romney's will do as their party continues to march off a cliff, even with Trump out of office? So there's there's two parts I'd like to kind of tackle yeah. in that question. Um, as far as what, like, Elizabeth Chain. No, no, I actually, I, I tweeted out that she should be the future of the Republican Party. Yeah. But the Republican Party is so far from hitting rock bottom that the Cheney and Romney's and all those Republicans and who are around right now, with a few that are showing some leadership, they'll be long gone by the time the party corrects itself. You know, maybe they say this. If. It, well, if they, it cycles. Yeah. And what I think you'll see happen is, you're going to have all these Trumpists and or worse, Trumpism seep into the state and, and local parties. And they are putting up these more and more extreme candidates. Maybe they get away with it in 2022. Uh, to some extent, the Republicans potentially take back the House. But down the road, they're just going to keep losing more and more elections because they're going to put up more and more extreme people. So their extremists will win primaries, but they won't win general elections. 
Liz Cheney, though, between now and then, I think will be, there's two things I think she's watching. One is Donald Trump is probably going to be indicted by the Manhattan District Attorney and or the Attorney General. That's going to happen within six months, six to eight months, most likely. He's going to have other things to be talking about, and she's still going to have that platform. One other thing is, is that that independent commission on January 6th will happen. And you, for all we know, you know, Nancy Pelosi could put Liz Cheney on it. And those, and, and we are going to see that January 6th insurrection torn apart. And subpoenas, minute by minute, minute, by minute subpoenas will be issued. It will be, she, and she will be shown on the right side of history in a, in a more immediate way. So if Donald Trump is dealing with legal problems, the Republicans in her, you know, who are ousting her now look like complete morons. There is a path potentially for her to just come back and look like a leader again, although that won't necessarily help the party overall. The party right now, we've, we've got a decade at least. I, I would suggest we probably have more than a decade, honestly. And this is something that we all talked about together last yeah. year as we were going through the whole defeat Donald Trump process. I, you know, I, re- I think that um, I think we're 25 years away from the Republican Party genuinely correcting and repairing and, and rebuilding itself in any meaningful manner, if at all. I think that uh, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger are the future of constitutional conservatism. I don't think they are the future of the Republican Party at all. I think that uh, that Susan's right, that Trump is going to have these legal problems that are not only going to distract him, but are going to be very public. We're all going to be following them, you know, minute by minute. Everybody in the country will know what it is and what's happening. And his support uh, from his base and from the Republican Party will grow as a result of that, not diminish. There will be a conviction that Donald Trump is being targeted and abused and, um, you know, unfairly pursued in the legal system for all these other reasons. Um, the, the Republican Party has made it clear they are Trumpists. They are going to stay Trumpists. They're going to build everything on Trumpism. Um, they continue, the RNC continues to fundraise on what Donald Trump says in the moment. Um, you know, I've still get my fundraising text from them. So I don't think that there is a time that, that, that there's a time anywhere close to where we are now, where the Republican party corrects on this. And let me say on a, on a small detail point, referencing something Susan just said too, the smartest thing Nancy Pelosi could do would be to put Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney on that, Mm. that, uh, one six, that, uh, insurrection, investigation yeah. commission. It would be the smartest thing she can do. She has missed a couple of opportunities already to bring Republican voices in where it would have mattered. In the impeachment, Adam Kin- Kinzinger begged to have time to persuade his Republican um, you know, colleagues to vote for impeachment, and they wouldn't give it to him. They made this decision that Republicans weren't going to get the stage at all. That was a mistake. And, the, and, and for her, if the Democratic leadership in the House and Senate would bring some of these rational Republicans in to what they are doing, it will strengthen them. It will strengthen their position, and it will put them in a better position to get reelected uh, in 2022. Susan, if you were advising Liz Cheney right now, what would you what would you be telling her? Keep doing what you're doing. Stay true to yourself. And also never 
miss an opportunity to speak out for what is right. She doesn't have to attack the other members of her party directly. She has to attack. She can question what they are doing. Now, if they attack her, she should, of course, respond. But she's going to be such a thorn in their side because she is such a credible voice. And so whether it be on conversations on foreign policy, on deficits, on taxes, she's there, but she will always be introed <laughs> with that who was you know, kicked out by her own party of leadership because she supports the Constitution. So I think that she should just keep doing what she's doing. There's an, she doesn't look like she's shying away from anything, nor should she. All right. Last question on this over under. You think she makes it or not? In the vote, in the vote next week. In the vote, no yeah. way, no, she's out. I think I don't think she gets. I don't think she gets twenty five percent of the the conference. Yeah, no. That listen, the whole reason Steve Scalise has gone on the record the way that he has. That's this is how it works. There's been several meetings. They've laid out the plan. They've laid out a timeline. You'll say this at this time. You'll be the person who runs with this message. Trump has been in on these conversations. It's all decided. It's all done. Nothing that Scalise or or McCarthy says in the past week or from now until that vote next week is spontaneous. You know, it this is it's strategic and it's all been evaluated and analyzed and this is what it's what they're going to say and how the how it's going to unfold. And and um if she wins then hell freezes over. So, let's talk about the Bill Barr news. Judge Amy Berman Jackson of the United States District Court in Washington D.C accused the Justice Department under Attorney General Bill Barr of misleading her and Congress about how they made the decision not to charge President Trump with obstructing justice in the Russia investigation. So Jackson said in a ruling on Monday that there appeared to be a pattern at DOJ in which top officials, including Barr, were untruthful to Congress and the public about the investigation. And she's ordered that a related memo written by Barr's top officials be released. Here's a quick refresher on the timeline for our listeners. In March of 2019, the Office of Special Counsel, Robert Mueller, delivered its report to the Justice Department. Mueller declined to make a determination about whether Trump had illegally obstructed justice. And two days after receiving the report, uh, which was some 400 and something pages, Barr sent a letter to Congress summarizing the report and saying that Trump would not be charged with obstruction. Mueller's team believed that Barr mischaracterized the report and privately urged him to release more of their findings, but Barr refused. And then about a month later, Barr testified to Congress that he had made the decision not to charge Trump, quote, in consultation with the Office of Legal Counsel and other department lawyers. And it is this assertion in which Judge Jackson says Bill Barr was being disingenuous. She ordered that a memo Barr referred to for this decision be released because, according to her, Barr and his aides had already decided not to bring charges against Trump and DOJ, falsely portrayed the memo as part of deliberations over whether to prosecute the president. So, Jennifer, we're probably never going to relitigate the Russia investigation and whether Trump obstructed justice. But what could these revelations about how Barr ran the DOJ tell us about Trump's conduct while in the White House? And that's exactly why this is important. Um, the um like, think about exactly what this judge's ruling is, what it says, that the U.S. Attorney General 
intentionally and knowingly lied to a federal judge and to the United States Congress. She says he misled them, was her language. I say he lied to a federal judge in the United States Congress for what purpose? To protect a corrupt sitting president of the United States of America. That's as bad as it gets just about right there, right? The, that our top law enforcement officer in our country engaged in intentional mistruths to protect a corrupt president. Bill Barr should face some sort of legal accountability for what he did. He never will. It won't happen. The president will never be held accountable for much of the corruption that he brought to the White House, the, pre the former president. Um, but that's what this is all about. That's what really happened here. And history needs to write the truth. History needs to see the truth and, and you know, so that future generations truly understand what happened here. There will never be a time where Kevin McCarthy or Mitch McConnell or, um, you know, anybody who has anything to do with the uh, Trump administration will come out and openly tell the truth and acknowledge corruption and dishonesty and all those things. But it's imperative for the future of democracy in America that the people know the truth and that the history books get it right. I'll just add, though, that it's also important that people right now know they can't get away with it. That's what I think the judge was also saying is like to any president who comes in and yeah. not suggesting that Biden would do it. But no, the, the the attorney general is not your personal attorney. No, you can't get away with these things. I will call you know the judicial system will call you out this independent body. You will not be able to get away with it. And I think that's what she's saying right now is that we are going to right the wrongs in the sense of the reputational harm that has been done to the Department of Justice and the integrity of the system. And everyone's going to know about it. Even if we can't hold other people accountable, everyone is on warning. Everything is going to come out. You know, I always have the same in crisis communications. If one person knows, everybody knows. And this is it. This is like going to be broadcast from the rooftops. This is the beginning of a lot of... Uh, secrets becoming public information. Yeah. So let's talk about that, Susan, the politicization here and the and the, the reputational damage, because I don't think we will see accountability for the people who have done the harm, but the harm remains in the form of the reputation of this institution. So last April, a Pew survey found that just 60% of Americans view the DOJ favorably. So think about this. April, right after lockdown hits, we've been in, we've been indoors for a month and all of this is happening. That's when 60% of Americans said they viewed the DOJ favorably, which is a lower level of favorability than Americans have for the Postal Service, the CDC, the Census Bureau, HHS, DHS, Federal Reserve, Veterans Affairs, and even the IRS. Most Americans favor the IRS over the DOJ as of April of last year. The only agency Pew included in the survey that DOJ beat was ICE. We don't yet have data from after Biden's inauguration on this updated number, but I think it's fair to say going all the way back to the investigation to Hillary Clinton's emails and James Comey's announcement days before the 2016 election, public trust in the FBI and the Justice Department on both sides of the aisle has, has been seriously frayed. So, you know, a major goal of the Biden administration is 
restoring the public's trust in the in the justice system and in institutions in general. How do you think um, Biden and Attorney General Merrick Garland have done so far? Well, I think what's interesting is when uh, former Mayor Rudy Giuliani uh, was his uh, apartment and office was raided by the FBI. They had a warrant to get some equipment from him, electronic equipment. Joe Biden didn't know what was happening. He has purposefully told Merrick Garland, no oversight from the executive branch here. Like, you go do what you have to do. And that's a very difficult thing. Now, people probably won't believe it who choose to believe in this undermining of of DOJ. But what's so shocking is, is Rudy Giuliani, who was in charge of the Southern District, basically said, oh, this is just, this is the corrupt system. No, they've been looking at you under Trump. <laughs> yeah. No, this isn't the corrupt system. This is a system that works. Yeah. But what I'm most concerned about is when you look at those numbers, the fact that people are more happy to give their books to the IRS than yeah. maybe greeting an FBI agent at their door. That's that is what's scary, especially when you look at the problems that we have in our country with domestic terrorism, people not feeling comfortable going to the police, not feeling comfortable going to the Justice Department. That scares the heck out of me. And I just I applaud what Joe Biden and and Attorney General Garland are trying to achieve here. It's going to take a lot of time. I think it's going to be really tough. Jennifer, you know, we talked about this a lot last year. How do you think they should walk the line between holding the past's bad actors accountable and being a forward-looking administration? And and can criminal activity in the Trump administration be pursued without the appearance of partisan gamesmanship? Because, you know, part of the risk in in moving forward with some prosecutions is 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 further politicizing the department, uh, at least in the eyes of of people on the right. How do you think about that? Well, no, you can't pursue, um, you know, justice for bad actions taken in the last administration without appearing partisan. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. You know, just like we were saying about Liz Cheney, that she stands on the side of the Constitution. She stands on the side of right. And the attorney general's office has to do that as well. They they always and the only way that you restore trust and um, confidence in these agencies is for them to conduct themselves print with principle and within the confines of the constitution. That doesn't mean that they should go after every single petty little thing that happened um, under the Trump administration, but it certainly means that big corruption has to be, should be um, investigated and held accountable again. But to what I said about the history, about, about history books, you know, getting it right. If they don't investigate it, if they don't release reports, then the American people don't know. And in the end, that's what, that's what is the most important thing that the people have a right to know that their leaders did or did not engage in illegal activities, that they were or were not corrupt, that, the, you know, the idea, everybody, you said something about we aren't going to relitigate Russia. You're right. We probably aren't going to relitigate Russia, but the American people have a right to know what mm-hmm. the truth was. Mm-hmm. So at some point there, you know, that at some point we have to say, 
that the most important thing is not whether or not it makes us look partisan, whether or not it makes us look like this or look like that. The most important thing has to be truth. And it has to be pursuing justice within the confines of the Constitution. And that's whether or not you're talking about um, black, unarmed black men being murdered on the street by police officers or Donald Trump um, engaging in gross corruption as president and, and everything else. We have to somehow return to the the shared belief as a nation, rather than looking at this one party versus another party, the shared value as a nation that truth matters and that justice must be served regardless of who we're talking about. As we turn the corner on COVID, at least in the U.S., we've seen the political battle lines over things like masks and lockdowns shifting a bit. So there was this article in The Atlantic uh, that caught my eye this week with the headline, The Liberals Who Can't Quit Lockdown. And it describes that as we've learned more about how the virus spreads and how it doesn't, Overcaution is now becoming a problem among groups that purport to believe in science, but are actually making unscientific choices about what is and isn't safe behavior. Uh, the CDC's updated guidance says now that it's safe to unmask outside as long as you're not in a crowd. New York City plans to fully reopen by July 1st, according to Mayor Bill de Blasio. Chicago is going to reopen by July 4th. Michigan says it will fully reopen two weeks after 70% of adults are vaccinated. And President Biden just announced a goal of having 70% of the U.S. adult population with at least one COVID-19 shot by July 4th. So first, we're not both sidesing the politicization of COVID. We've talked extensively about how serious a problem vaccine hesitancy is on the right and how Trump and conservatives in general and right-wing media have been spreading misinformation about the virus for over a year. We are not equivocating that behavior with what we're seeing now from some on the left who are making miscalculations about risk. But still, I find this fascinating. Um, Susan, I want to start with you from a communication standpoint. What has been the biggest failure or shortcoming, uh, in your view, about informing the public about behavior that is safe, especially once you are vaccinated, and how how we can evolve our social norms that we built up during the, the height of the pandemic? Well, I think it's the consistency coming out of the White House is troubling, <laughs> or the inconsistency, I should say, because... They're saying the CDC is saying it's okay to not wear a mask under these circumstances. And yet they're always masking in the White House. And it's it's troubling because it's confusing people and it's not. And states don't know what to follow. And there is a red state, blue state difference. Yeah. I mean, the red states don't follow anything, but especially when it comes <laughs> to vaccines, right? Vaccines Actually, yeah. or, or masks. They weren't wearing masks three months ago. So right. it had nothing. They were ignoring CDC rules and regulations. It's just like when you say New York is going to open up um, on Ju you know, J July 1st, according to the mayor, May 19th, according to the governor, again, inconsistency. But they both say it's you're, you're opening up at 100 percent as long as you're following CDC guidelines, which means if you have a restaurant, you have your capacity is 100. 
Well, if you have to keep your table six feet apart, your capacity is really closer to 60. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so you can fully open up all 60. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. And that's, that's a problem right there. And when I talk about the messaging, yes, it's true. The president did not wear a mask during his address to Congress. However, I do not see the need why the vice president and the speaker did. And the reason why is they've both been fully vaccinated for far more than two weeks. They were, it was a small um, socially distanced chamber. They're really, they, if they are going to say we want to send a message, say we are going to wear our mask until 70% of the people are vaccinated. I would understand that. Just give us a reason because right now this does not make sense. And that's what they have to offer up is what is our message? And what rules are we going to tell people to play by? And we all have to play by them, at least if we want to be a healthy society. Jennifer, it seems like we've primed ourselves to feel good about shaming people who break the rules. Um, How is that impacting how people react to changing information and guidance regarding masks and social distancing? And, you know, I I mentioned this uh, a couple of weeks ago. uh, Lucy Caldwell was on the Roundup, and and I mentioned to her, it seems like we have created a stronger social norm around wearing masks, for example, than – around actually following evolving guidelines because we we know that the science uh, continually continually evolves the nature of science and we we have learned a lot about this pandemic on an ongoing basis and as a result uh, uh, and as a result of the Biden administration's successful vaccination rollout uh, those guidelines are now changing. This is what we hoped for. This is what we have been working towards. And so how do we deal with that? How do you see that impacting um, how the reactions to changing information? Yeah. And that's where I would have gone with this. You know, that's been one of the problems with this from the beginning. Why were uh, the Republicans able to weaponize and politicize this as effectively as they were right at the beginning? Because there was a total lack of knowledge of COVID-19 when this all started. Right. No science. They were it was it was brand new. They they were able to weaponize it in in a political manner that was extremely damaging. That's not where we are anymore. Here we are over a year later, we have a significant uh, foundation of actual scientific information, scientific data on this. And to Susan's point, that's what Biden's Mm -hmm. messaging should be rooted in. And, And there's nothing wrong with him coming forward and saying, okay, we've been doing X, Y, and Z up until now, but it is now clear. We have learned. We, our scientists and our doctors have discovered. And so now going forward, this is going to be what we do and how we do it. Um, there are thousands of examples of this across the country. Now I would say, and I don't want to put words in Susan's mouth, but I would look at this and say, to some degree, I have no doubt that the overwhelming majority of human beings in this country want uh, people to be safe and protected and healthy and to survive. I believe that. But I also would suggest that there are some on the left who have sort of gotten a little bit giddy with the control. There is something about liberalism that is a little bit different from conservatism in that it, it kind of buys into the idea of much greater government control in a lot of ways. And I don't want to get into that 
political debate, that's a good debate for us to have as a country to, to have that, you know, difference exist. But I do wonder if some of them haven't kind of gotten caught up in that as they push back on letting go of control. In New Hampshire, for example, the governor, Governor Chris Sununu, um, has just um, um, canceled the statewide mask mandate with the caveat, of course, that uh, towns and counties who have always had the authority to, you know, have certain types of, uh, you know, have certain certain amount of authority over these things. P- private businesses have a right to put on whatever sort of, um, um, you know, restrictions they want to come in. But he said, he said, based on the science, based on the medicine, based on what the facts, we no longer need this statewide mask mandate. Um, and so, so I, I think that, and yet what we saw in New Hampshire is that there are some on the left who were adamantly opposed, who were very angry and came out and very, very vocal about, about him taking this movement, taking this action. So, so I do think that, um, the best thing that President Biden could do would be to change his behavior visibly in accordance with the changing CDC guidelines. It is the best way to create consistency and for people to understand what's actually happening. One of the risks I see here is that if we stick to the overly cautious uh, behavior now, um, I'm afraid it may, and I think I think that Emma Green noted this in the article, um, that it may actually have a, a, a an exacerbating effect on anti-vaxxers, people who are hesitant to get the vaccine, if they see that actually, well, it it won't matter because I'm still going to have to follow all these rules anyway. I'm still going to have to wear them. Basically, they they might interpret that as what is the benefit of getting a vaccine if the same uh, if the if I have to take all of the same restrictions. Uh, into consideration even after I'm vaccinated. And yeah, so how do you how do you think about that impacting the thinking of people who we really desperately need to get the vaccine in order to achieve herd immunity? Well, I think you have to look at people who are hesitant to get the vaccination because they just don't trust the science, maybe because we knew so little early on and the rules changed, wear a ma- don't wear a mask, wear a mask. A lot of people I know point to that. And they say, well, you know, how do they know this is actually really safe? And I'm like, you know, they did the test and they uh, there's a legitimate point of view. I happen to disagree with it, but there are those. Then there are those people who are just defiant. I'm not going to do it. You know, this is just this whole thing is a hoax. The government just wants to take control of my life. Forget about it. So there's that. Then there's also a frustration, just to go back to the previous point, about, for example, teachers now mm-hmm. do not want to go back to schooling, school right away, even though they were the priority, um, received priority treatment for the vaccination. And then you have Randy Weingartner, the head of the teachers union, working with the CDC to modify their, their, their yeah. guidance for teachers. That is frustrating. And it goes to the point of if they're starting to politicize this and tinkering around those restrictions, why am I getting the vaccination? Now, there is something that I think is is very important that they're starting to do is using different validators. It was at first community validators in your church or synagogue um, or maybe famous people um, when it came to the African-American community, getting people of color. But now they're trying to use medical professionals. And they are the ones going out with the teams that go do the vaccinations, especially in rural areas, 
to be able to explain what it is from a doctor's perspective. That seems to me the best course correction now that we need to start moving away from the celebrity and the, in that, and, and really target the people who may not have the fullest understanding of what this all means. And that if my doctor in my community is saying, Susan, you got to do this because let's not forget what this is all about. This is about swamping the hospital system and people dying. Yes. That's what it comes down to. And I mean, there's a whole nother conversation to be had about how our hospital system is coordinated now, but that's what we're trying to avoid. And if you can't get a respirator or you live in a rural area that there hasn't been many vaccinations and your hospital's two hours, three hours away and only has three respirator beds. Mm-hmm. That's going to affect you. And it's, you know, that's where we start, have to start convincing people and informing people to, to be more open to the vaccination. Yeah. But you, you know what, this has really exposed another problem in our country that has come up through Trumpism as well. And I, I'm torn between whether it is a willingness to believe things that are scientifically completely unsupported, or if it's a enough a, a wider spread lack of knowledge and understanding than I realized that we had in this country. Um, I mean, we know that throughout the Trump era, um, misinformation, outright lies, being fully embraced and advanced, you know, that's just part of Trumpism. When I see it in, in connection to the, the COVID vaccine, it kind of makes my brain explode a little bit because it's so dangerous and it's so disconnected. There was a story, a great story on CNN last night about women who have become convinced that um, getting the vaccine will either cause them to have a miscarriage or that while pregnant, if they are near people who have been vaccinated, that somehow something from the vaccine oh, yeah. that is inside those people can be shed and absorbed by pregnant women and cause them to have birth defects or or um, miscarriages. Like it's completely insane. From, yeah. it, I, thought, I say it's crazy. Yeah. It is crazy. But the the fact that these otherwise rational, what seemingly otherwise rational people believe this and are putting themselves and their their pregnancies at risk because they're not getting the vaccine, the doctors recommend that they should get the vaccine. So you know, when Susan says sending the doctors out, sending out actual medical professionals now to bring, that's what we need in this moment. That's what that, she's absolutely right. That is what we need in this moment because the the craziness of what some people believes is also extremely dangerous. We should be clear that we strongly advocate for people to follow science-based practices. And it's also worth noting that if people feel more comfortable still wearing a mask outside, even after they've been vaccinated, then you should. You can be more cautious than the CDC guidelines, but you can't demand other people be more cautious than the CDC guidelines. Exactly. Exactly. Before I let you go, where can everybody find you on the internet, Jennifer? At NH Jennifer on Twitter. Thanks for having me, Ron. And Susan? At DelPercyOS on Twitter. Beautiful. And I'm at Ron Steslow on Twitter. 
Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you have any questions or advice for us, you can reach us as always at podcast at politicology.com. You can also help us by rating and reviewing the show wherever you get your podcasts and by sharing this episode. And make sure you're following us on Twitter and Instagram at politicologypod. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.